You're listening to Sibling Talk, commentary from a progressive point of view. Now here are your hosts, John Paulette and Mary Jo Tumer. Hello, I'm John Paulette. And I'm Mary Jo Tumer. Mary, if you just want to scare the heck out of a conservative, you can say some things. I mean, they still get scared about evolution. That that freaks them out a little bit. Ever since the Scopes trial, that's that's been a problem. You can talk uh, about uh, gender. That gets to them. But you really want to get them upset? Mention critical race theory. And it's amazing. The interesting thing is, this is really just like an academic movement, uh, kind of a way of studying and considering how the issues of race uh, challenge, approach, what would be the mainstream views of of racial justice. And maybe putting that in a simple kind of term, you know, for those of us who grew up in in the 60s uh, and 70s, our view of racial justice really was one of integration. Uh, you know, to some extent, it was uh, typified by Martin Luther King. You know, I dream of a day when white children and, and black children and that view that we would someday be colorblind and that would save uh, the race issues was, was really dominant. Critical race theory really challenges that and it challenges it by saying all racism is not the product of just a single person with racist thoughts or individual racist attitudes. There is a greater systemic problem to it. Uh, It challenges us to recognize that being white is not just being another color. There is a privilege that's associated with that. And as a result, uh, it creates uh, a violence and oppression. I, I often think, that one of the phrases or ideas that goes closest uh, to very simply showing what uh, uh, critical race theory is, and it's one that got me in trouble once. I had a student raise her hand in class, and she said, Mr. Paulette, you know, black people can be racist too. And I said, no, they can't. And oh, she just about screamed. I said, you never said, can they be biased? Absolutely. Can they be bigoted? Absolutely. Can they be prejudiced? Absolutely. But racism is the result of power and oppression. So it is not just that you're a different color or have feelings. It is that you within, as a white person, hold certain privilege and power. Now, if any of our listeners are real experts on critical race theory, I'm sorry, I just did a crappy job of explaining (laughs) it. I honestly God did my best to try and put it out there. But it must scare conservatives because they want to outlaw it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's in the kind of the zeitgeist now in a way that I don't think it was for years. So, um, and you probably have a better sense of the historical origins. Was it a, um, a professor at Harvard? Am I right about that? Was the first yep. person yeah. to use that expression that right and, and it was in the early 1980s so it's not that terribly long ago uh the man's name was Derek bell and he was a a law professor i'm pretty right. certain no for uh, sure 
and uh, at at Harvard, and he and his students were kind of the first to use it. Use it, but that's you know forty years ago, and it seems like it's just kind of bubbling up. And that would have been basically why I was in law school in the late eighties. Um, so where we would have professors who would talk about how areas of the law were influenced by whichever way you want to look at it, the privilege of white folks or the, um, the, discrimi the built-in discrimination or racism against people of color. And um, an easy one people talk about is real estate redlining and how certain neighborhoods have less value because of the racial makeup of those um, neighborhoods. And that's not by accident. And how the whole, you know, the entire legal system is in a sense built to protect um, the, the, you know, the main class, the white class of people. And it's, it's a little mind bending to be honest with you because if we think of ourselves as individuals as not making decisions based on race, which many people do, even people who might be racist themselves think, well, I'm not personally racist. But that's you have you get from that place of your own individual actions to how am I benefiting from a society that favors um, one race over the other? And it's a, as an individual, sometimes it's a little difficult to stomach. So when you talk about your student who says, well, black people can be racist, it's and your answer was like the perfect answer, because what folks need to understand, and which is hard for us to accept, is in the world, there are a lot of biased people, <laughs> you know, we all have our biases. But are we any one of us in a position of power? to then inflict that on another entire group or on the other side of that benefit from the laws that protect an entire group. It's a very complicated thing. And well, I think that, that, and then Derek Bell was ultimately fired, right? I mean, he, so he had kind of a difficult career related to him being the, you know, the father of critical race theory. That's my Well, he, he did. And I mean, you use the phrase uh, hard to swallow. It is. And you know who I think has the most trouble swallowing uh, some of the things that come out of, of race theory are, are people like you and me, because critical race theory was not really a challenge to the racist uh, or, you know, groups that fall with that. It was a challenge to classic American liberalism. And it said, those of you like John Paulette, who thought the race was run and the struggle was won uh, in the 1960s, no, you don't get it. There is more to it than that. And so it has forced us to reevaluate. And here, let me give you a real specific one. You know, much of the belief that we had was that if you, me as a white person, if you developed empathy with uh, people of color, that that would allow us to achieve an understanding uh, and inequality and and equality. I'm sorry. And, you know, we kind of saw that in the term ally. And I, I've used that term about myself. 
No, I'm not black, I'm not gay, but I am an ally. Critical race theory says, no, it is not enough for you to think that you are empathetic and to create a narrative of your own. And that narrative might say, I marched with Martin Luther King, I have always worked not to be racist, therefore I'm an ally and I'm good. Critical race, is, wait, race theory says, wait a minute. And so for many liberals, I think this has been a really difficult for thing for them to understand. Now, first, I suspect people don't read all that deeply uh, about it, but to get past kind of the Martin Luther King feeling about it. Does that make any sense? It does. And it's interesting, John, because at this moment in time, as we are evolving and understanding really the, um, the, how do you say this exactly, you know, the, the, the uh, effect of the systemic racism on the lives, the everyday lives of black folks. So as we start to appreciate that, we can say, well, I know I have a privilege. In other words, when I drive my car and get pulled over, I don't feel the risk that I'm going to be shot or killed or taken to jail. You know, we've all seen that. But the thing is, what do we do about it? <laughs> I mean, so it's like, I can be a, uh, you know how the, used to use, the communists used to use fellow traveler, you know, yeah. that meant to you like ally. And I had all these gay friends in law school and they always called us straight folk, fellow travelers, which I thought was great and ironic and I loved it. But um, I can be a fellow traveler, but do I have any power or any authority to change that? And how do we make change? If you believe change is necessary, and if I believe that it is, am I willing to have those changes be made at my own personal expense? Because that's the thing about being part of the privileged class. I can be part of the privileged class and say, isn't that terrible that I have all these privileges, but am I willing to give up any of those privileges? In other words, is it a zero sum game? And one of the examples I always think when I we're talking about these issues is when women first started entering the workforce and people thought of women as being comparable to other minorities. And pretty quickly we realized that that was not true that white privilege um, associated itself with women as they entered college and then entered the workforce. This is not to say there's not discrimination and issues built in for women, but you can see women moving up the corporate ladder in the way that you never see African-Americans moving at the same pace. And so they aren't the same, right? It's, it's not the, a minority Women are not a minority and white women are more closely aligned with their male counterparts than either male or female black folk are. Well, and you've landed on one of the key parts of this. And, you know, we were kind of raising the question at the beginning uh, of what frightens uh, conservatives and Republicans about this. I'll tell you what it is. A key part of the theory is intersectionality. And what that is, says is that we must consider not just the oppression of people of color, we have to consider the oppression of women, and we have to look at where those two intersect. What is the difference 
in the experience and the narrative of women of color. What does that affect? What does it happen in the jobs? What does it happen uh, you know, in daycare, in childbearing experience, in a wide range of experience? And I always say it's scary enough to some people, some Americans, to know that people of color need rights, but you tell them that you've got to give authority to women, and then they're saying, okay, pal, that's too far. <laughs> We've had enough. And you're talking about a black woman? Oh, oh wait a minute. Jeez, how, how far are you going to go on this? <laughs> it's very true. So one of the things that got me thinking about this, and you and I talked about it today, as hard as we, we have had trying to find time to podcast, we did have a couple of conversations, is that these states who are moving to outlaw teaching of the 1619 Project, for anybody who doesn't know what that is, a couple of years ago, the, you know, the New York Times, I think it was in the, no, it wasn't in the magazine, I don't remember, but anyway, it was a long, long series about the first slaves coming to North America, and then how the laws, things we still live with today, Become, became built into our system from 1619 and the fact that those human beings were owned and were slaves to other people and how that's affected, you know, the development of race relations in the United States, whoa, these 400 years. So, um, so that's, there's a curriculum, a 1619 curriculum, and some of the states have outlawed the teaching of the 1619 curriculum or it has to be taught alongside uh, kind of a racial apologist curriculum for lack of a better way to describe it. And also the other thing that has crept into the popular conversation around this is critical race theory, which I think you're right. What you said before is that most people probably have no idea what it means, but it does sound scary. Mm -hmm. Sounds very scary. And yeah, it's so interesting to me as you talk about the curriculum, I had, I know I refer back to my students, but I hear them when these questions come up. And I remember one uh, young man saying, slavery was terrible, it was awful, but it was a long time ago and we ended that, that's over. That's a real strong white narrative. Okay, mm -hmm. we had that little problem in our life. What we need to look at are the kind of things you were, were just mentioning. We are realizing that policing as we know it today has its roots in capturing slaves. It absolutely does. And as we trace the, the history. And so this mobilized military force that works within cities, we don't hear the same things much out in suburbs, have got historic roots in the racial narrative. We know that our vote, voting system, the Electoral College, many of these things trace back to the three-fifths part of, uh, of the Constitution. And so you know, race theory, critical race theory, is really a way to study things, to bring these elements together, and to ask those kind of questions and realize that what happened as a result of uh, our slave heritage is important, and it is part of what we're facing facing today. We can't just say, Oh, yeah, that slavery was bad. I saw all about it in Gone with the Wind, and we shouldn't do that again. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my Lord. Okay, yeah, this was a complicated it's really topic. The challenge, it's the challenge of this generation, not our generation, 
but a younger generation who does want change and does see the world differently, I think in large part, and it's really the challenge is can they dismantle the laws that have um, supported and allowed for white privilege, even when they've been the beneficiaries of it. Right. And that goes to the heart of states. And there are a number of them saying, no, don't teach the 1619 project. I mean, the answer is simple. Don't teach our kids that or they will dismantle this structure. And nobody right. understands those things quite as well as conservatives. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're done that way. Yeah, absolutely. All right, John. All right. Have a lovely evening. You too. Bye. Bye. Sibling Talk is a JMP production. Theme song by David Paulette.